Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 5. We are finishing chapter 5 this morning. We looked last week at the first part of the chapter, the vision of the flying scroll. And if that wasn't strange enough for you, this morning we have the vision of a woman in a basket being carried away by two other women who have wings like the wings of a stork. So as we resume in verse 5, hear the word of the Lord. And the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. Behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Father, we ask as we probe these mysteries that you would speak to us through these visions, that what is cryptic would become clear and that we would feel the impact of your command to us. In Christ's name, amen. So as we contemplate this vision, there's a lot of strange things going on. In order to understand what's happening, we're going to take it in two parts. So first, we'll just take a look at the basket and what's going on with that. And then once we've done that, we'll take a look at the, the winged women carrying the basket away and what that's all about. So we'll take a look first at just verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. And the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. It's interesting here, the angel is directing Zechariah's vision. Just take a look at this. And in this case, if you notice, it's the angel who's narrating things, who's prompting things. It's not going in response to questions of Zechariah until a little bit later. So the angel wants Zechariah to see what's happening. What is, he uses this word twice, going out. So whatever the basket is, whatever its significance, we see it in motion. It's, it's moving. It's on its way out. It's being taken out of the land. So we have a basket and we have a leaden weight on top of the basket. And this is one of those instances, we've seen them before, where the Hebrew reveals a little bit more than the English does. So this isn't just any sort of basket. It's a kind of basket called an ephah, and it serves a purpose, which is to take measurements. So it's a basket that has a certain defined volume. So you know when that basket is filled, it contains a certain amount inside. It contains an ephah inside. Now, that's not super helpful because we don't use that unit of measurement anymore. So an ephah is like a proportion of a bushel. 
I don't know about you, but I don't know what a bushel is either. This helps. It's about 22 liters. So if you imagine a, a two liter plastic bottle of your favorite drink and you had 11 of those, that's about an ephah, the contents of that. So if you envision those bottles together, it's not huge. It's not like a 55 gallon drum that we're talking about. It's a basket that holds about 22 liters inside. And the lid on the basket is a lead weight, but literally it's a lead talent. And that too is a unit of measurement. It weighs, if it's a true measure, it weighs 75 pounds. And so if you put a lead talent on the other side of the scale, you know that that on this side, you've got 75 pounds worth of stuff and it balances out. So we've already seen measuring lines, we've seen plumb lines, but once again here, we're getting units of measurement, units of volume and weight to be added to the units of distance that we've already seen. So so the basket is for filling and the lead weight is really heavy that's on top of it to keep the contents of the basket inside. Now, The sins of the flying scroll that we looked at before were theft and perjury, lying in the name of God. And these are sins in particular in the marketplace. We deceive people, we exploit people, and then we swear falsely that our measure is true. Once again, these units of measurement are marketplace measurements. You want to go out and buy an ephah of something. You want to have, to be sure, you've got like a, a, a lead talents worth of goods for your payment. The Bible often uses the idea of false measurement, deceitful measurement, that sort of trickery and cheating as a metaphor for wickedness as a whole. And here, once again, we see this, but maybe in inverted, because now we have wickedness in the basket. And it's as if wickedness has been snared, has been trapped by a true measure, by, by a, a measure of volume that is accurate. And now wickedness is contained within it. Now, the significance of the contents of the basket, it's wickedness. It's iniquity, the angel says. This is all their iniquity. As if their iniquity has like reached the rim. Like we have filled the basket with it. And now it's time to do something about this iniquity. It's being removed from the land. We already saw in an earlier vision, in vision four, a promise that the iniquity of the people would be removed in a single day. So now we're seeing iniquity being transported, or let's say deported, out of the land, as was promised. And it's interesting, too, to see how the angel handles this basket. There's a lot of kind of rough usage here. There's a heavy weight over the basket holding wickedness in. He lifts it in order to, to show the contents, and then immediately thrusts the wickedness back down and puts the weight on it. That thrusting, that thrusting down shows the angel is being hard on wickedness. The angel is containing and controlling and exercising sovereignty, power over wickedness to keep it fenced in and contained and to deal with it. So here we're seeing a vision of wickedness overpowered, Wickedness removed from the lands that the land might be, as we said last time, a land of righteousness. But you got to wonder, why, when they open the basket, is there a woman inside? 
Why is wickedness represented here as a woman? I know in your mind, some of you guys are thinking of an obvious answer, and I'm going to encourage you not to say it out loud, even to whisper it, because it's not accurate. You're going to say, well, it makes sense to me. Wickedness would be a woman. Both wickedness and wisdom are personified as women in the New Testament. If you look in the book of Proverbs, you'll see that folly is a woman, but so is wisdom as well. So if you make those cheap shots against your wife, you will have to explain why wisdom is also a woman. Interestingly, though, the symbolism here may be a little more contextual. Now, I wish I had special music to play right now to emphasize the speculative part of the sermon. What I'm about to say is interpretation. It's not clear in the text that this is what's going on, but there's an implication here that this woman, there's a significance to her being represented as wickedness. Um, It has to do with a word you may have heard before, but maybe not, Asherah. Asherah. Asherah was a female deity, a, a god or goddess in the land of Canaan, who was constantly a focus of idolatry throughout the the history of Israel. In the New Testament, sorry, in the Old Testament, when you read kind of the the history of good kings and bad kings, and you ask yourself what makes a good king and what makes a bad king, basically what makes a good king or a bad king is, is whether they tolerate the worship of Asherah or not. So you'll you'll hear high places are being torn down, or trees or poles are being torn down. And that's the significance of this. The the Asherah pole is a pole or a tree that was used in the worship of this Canaanite goddess. So her worship was associated with trees or with groves of trees. And oftentimes, altars to Yahweh would have added to them Asherah poles nearby so that you could go and worship Yahweh, make sacrifices to Yahweh, and you could also make worship to Asherah as well while you were there. Not only did this happen out in the countryside at random altars, in the Temple of Solomon, during the reigns of certain kings, there were also representations of Asherah that were present in the temple so that she could be worshipped alongside with Yahweh as well. Good kings occasionally came along and tore these things down. Bad kings were the norm, not good kings. When we look back on the history of Israel, we imagine a whole nation united in worshiping the true God. It wasn't that way. It wasn't that way. Most of the time, a lot of the people were worshiping false gods as well. And Asherah is kind of the the foremost of these. And so there's a suggestion that wickedness in the basket is represented this way because idolatry is the ultimate form of wickedness. But the essence of wickedness has always been idolatry. If you go back to Romans 1, which we looked at not too long ago, you find that Paul makes this very clear, that worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator is the essence of sin. What we do fundamentally when we sin, we worship something other than God. Quick aside here. People in Israel, the idolaters in Israel, they weren't worshiping Asherah instead of worshiping Yahweh. They were worshiping Asherah in addition to 
worshiping Yahweh more often than not. It's not that they were tearing down the temple or, or knocking over the, the, the good altars. They were just adding stuff around them so that they could kind of do multiple services there. That's a kind of idolatry that we should be able to relate to because that's the kind of idolatry to which we ourselves are prone. We don't worship other gods instead of the true God. We worship other gods in addition to the true God. And that's how we tell ourselves that we are worshipers of the true God. We just tend to forget that we don't only worship him. We don't exclusively worship him, that our bets are spread out on several different hopes. There's another consideration here in the context. You think about why is wickedness represented the way that it is. In Nehemiah 13, we discover that there's a problem, a really practical problem in this Jerusalem that they're rebuilding, which is the intermarriage of the returned exiles to the the Canaanite people who are already in the land. There's a lot of intermarriage going on, and Nehemiah addresses this as a problem. And, And when he does in chapter 13, he goes back to the example of Solomon. He rebukes the people and says, you're doing what Solomon did with all of his foreign wives. And and the result with Solomon was it led him to idolatry. And it's having the same effect on you. And it always does because you will make room to worship what the people you love worship. You will make accommodation to worship what the people you love worship. And so Nehemiah has to give the people an admonition, a warning. All this suggests to us the layers of meaning present in that glimpse the angel gives of the contents of the basket. But then the vision goes on. I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. When this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. If you're old enough to remember that song, The Wind Beneath My Wings, I hated that song because I'm, I'm a smart person and, and all decent people hated that song as you hate all songs that are repeated over and over and over and over and over again. Please, this reference has nothing to do with that terrible song. The wind in their wings has a symbolic significance that's actually quite beautiful. And it's one that's also present in the vision before of the the flying scroll. In symbolism in the Bible, when you see things that are uh, blown by the wind or things that are carried up into the air between earth and heaven, that symbolizes the divine power of God. It shows that God is at work in the scenario, in a similar way to the way Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 3. Because the, the wind blows from one direction, you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but you see the effects that it does. The wind does what it wants, and you can see the evidence of its work. Same idea here. So when we see that the wind is in their wings, we have to understand that what they're doing is powered by God. Powered by the divine judgment that is being enacted here. Having said that, though, 
Having wings like the wings of a stork is interesting because storks are unclean birds. In the uh, Old Testament ritual system, some animals are clean, others are unclean, and storks fall under the unclean category. So the implication is something like these are forces being used by God's power, but in and of themselves, they are corrupt and wicked as well. So they're carrying this basket of wickedness. They're carrying it to a house that is being built for wickedness. And in that picture, as you just imagine it, imagine the basket. Imagine the, the, the women on either side of it and their wings spread out as they carry it. And you ask yourself, have we seen a picture like this already? Does this remind me of any other pictures that we've seen in these visions? Well, yeah, it does. Remember when we talked about the sons of oil, the trees on either side of the lampstand who fed the lampstand with their oil and said that this is suggestive of the angels in the Holy of Holies on either side of the Ark of the Covenant because they were made of olive wood, although they were covered in gold. Well, if you picture that scene, if you picture the two angels with their wings outspread with the Ark of the Covenant, the container, the seat of God's presence between them, now, in contrast, we see two other winged figures holding between them a seat of the presence, not of God, but of wickedness. And you have a kind of inverse image of the two, of what's taking place. So the the presence of wickedness is being carried out of the presence of God and taken to the land of Shinar. The container of wickedness is being removed from the seat of holiness, being banished from the land. Now, of course, this vision, like the one that preceded it, is a picture of judgment a judgment on people who are living in the land but do not love the God of the land. They claim to. They may throw some worship his way, but they're also worshiping false gods as well. And they've been warned and their wickedness is being taken away. In that sense, you might think of this as a reversal of Exodus, where in Exodus, the people were brought out of captivity and ushered into the land of promise Here, the the wicked are being ushered out of the land of promise so that that land might be pure. So, in the last vision of the Flying Scroll, we talked about the house of the wicked being torn down. And if you were worried, where will wickedness live? Will wickedness be homeless? You can be reassured. Because it turns out there's a house being built for wickedness, and it's located in the land of Shinar. So it's outside this land, located in this other land, Shinar. And remember, when we did our kind of quick overview of the visions, the significance of Shinar is, if you go back to the book of Genesis, that's where the Tower of Babel was located. In the Tower of Babel, you have the epitome of human idolatry, self-worship. Because instead of worshiping God, the people built a monument to themselves and their reason for doing it was to make their name great, to glorify themselves. And forever after, Babel becomes a sort of touchstone. You want to understand what human beings in rebellion to God do. 
what human idolatry and sin looks like, think of Babel, because that is the essence of it. So it's no accident that wickedness is being transported to the land of idolatry, to the land of self-worship. But Babel has other associations. If you just say the word, it sounds a lot like the, the city that the people have just returned from, Babylon. Babel and Babylon have a connection in prophecy. Babylon becomes the symbol of what Augustine calls the city of man, the the rule and reign of self-worship, of idolatry, of wickedness. That's Babylon. Even after the city of Babylon has fallen, right, in the age of the exiles, and then much later, during the Roman Empire, in the book of Revelation, in talking about the Roman world and the city of Rome, it's referred to as Babylon because Babylon continues to be a symbol of the world up in arms against its creator. Babylon the Great, scholars of the book of Revelation will tell you that that seems to point, among other things, to the city of Rome. But if you go to Revelation 11, you see that there's more shades of meaning there because in Revelation 11:8, the great city is identified with Jerusalem, the place where Christ was crucified. So Babylon the Great, the great city, the city of man, the city of idolatry, is not just a geographical city. It's not just the capital of an evil empire. It is the city where, where all the human beings who reject the God who made them live and move, and have their being. That's the symbolic value of it. So wickedness is being carried away to this place where wickedness is worshipped and practiced. You might think of this place as a kind of uh, false church, which is what it turns out to be in Revelation. A place that claims to worship what is good, but also worships what is evil side by side with it. So we see the focus of this vision is the punishment of those who are in the land, the the old Israel, the church, in the, 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 the scope of the promises of the covenant, but who worship other gods, whose trust is in someone other than Christ. Now, we can go a lot deeper here. We're not going to go too much deeper, but we will go a little bit deeper. If you look in your Bible and book of Revelation, A lot of Revelation owes a debt to Zechariah, and I want to try to help you see just a little bit of this in Revelation chapter 11 and chapter 12. 11 and 12 definitely depend on Zechariah imagery a lot. At the beginning of chapter 11, the apostle John is given a measuring line, and he's told to measure out the temple precincts. But he's told when you measure it, you need to have a line of separation between like the inner courts and the outer courts, because the outer courts have been given over to the nations. They've been given over to judgment. Now that measuring and that movement parallels the movement of the night visions in general, from working from the outside in. And the division that that measuring line makes distinguishes between the work of salvation that God's going to do, that we've seen pictured already in the fourth and the fifth visions, and then the work of judgment that we're seeing pictured here in these visions. We've seen already the the sons of oil kind of contributing a a parallel in in this seventh vision, but 
in Revelation 11, they reappear. And the, the menorah, the lampstand, is present again as well, bearing witness. We see at the end of chapter 11, the, the temple in heaven is opened. And, and John is able to glimpse into the presence of God and see the Ark of the Covenant is located there. And in chapter 12, a symbolic woman is introduced. Another woman who represents something, something very different from what we've just been looking at. This woman gives birth to a son who is destined to rule. She's pursued by a dragon, a little bit like a serpent, but she is delivered by God from this. She is given wings of an eagle in order to fly away and escape from her persecutors, reminiscent of the women with wings in Zechariah's vision. This woman is sustained in the wilderness by God as she is hunted. The dragon, we're told, makes war not only on her, but on her other offspring. In addition to the son who she bore, the promised one, her other offspring are made war on. And then the vision actually identifies who these offspring are. And this helps us understand who the woman must be. Her offspring are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So these are the saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, whose offspring are those saints? Like what mother could have given birth to the Savior of mankind, but also given birth to the people of God? Well, there's your answer. She is the people of God. She is the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament. She is the church understood in its broadest sense. She is the woman who, by the end of the book of Revelation, becomes the bride of Christ, united to him. Jesus came from the line of the woman. We're told in Genesis 3.15, he was her offspring. And now he is united to his people, the church. So there's a continuity that is stressed here throughout in this positive representation of this woman as us, as the people of God throughout history, Old Testament, New Testament, and today. Now, there is also this other woman, wickedness, in the book of Revelation. She's the one who presides in Babylon, but Babylon, the great, the city of man, falls in Revelation 17 and 18. So, one woman finds ruin in the fall of Babylon, while the other is united to the bridegroom immediately afterwards in the marriage feast of the Lamb. So. What does all this mean for us today? We can look back in, in history at these visions. We look forward to their ultimate fulfillment in, in the second coming of Christ. But right now, how should they speak to us? Well, if there's no place for idolatry in the land, then there is no place for idolatry in our hearts. God cannot simply be included in your heart. He must be exclusive in your heart. We haven't been called to worship God in addition to other gods, to cherish him in addition to other hopes and saviors that we might cherish, but to do so instead of all others, forsaking all others. There is no credit for partial faithfulness. If you think it's possible to, to worship God mostly and then occasionally 
to worship and cherish other idols. Scripture says it's not that way. In fact, the people condemned as idolaters did exactly that. That's what they were guilty of. It wasn't that they wholly rejected the worship of the true God. It's that they supplemented it with some of their own gods, their household gods, so to speak. So what we need to do is identify our Asherah and then shut the lid. Figure out who it is we're worshiping in addition to the true God and then shut the lid. If you want to know how to identify such false gods, one way to do it that I found helpful is just to ask yourself, what are the areas of your life where you find yourself thinking things like, I know the Bible says this, but. I know that God commands this, but. The areas of life where we want to carve out a little bit of permissiveness, an exception to the rule, where it's possible to, to, to cherish what God says, but at the same time, hold it in tension with this other thing that seems to contradict what God commands, but maybe in my mind, I can make it all fit together and work. These are the identifiers. These are the areas where idolatry has a hold of us. That's where your Asherah is, where you've hidden it away in a little basket and you're trying to keep it safe. That's where it's located. Whatever part of your life that you attempted to protect from the influence of God, to keep the Bible from, from changing that part of your life, from forcing those sacrifices on you, that's where the idol reigns. That's where the idol reigns. Now, I understand this. Like, I'm not calling you out and saying, you're a bad idolater. I know how this works as a pastor I see this happen over and over again, where people who are devout, people who are faithful, will suddenly take a detour into denial, will suddenly live in ways that contradict what they formerly professed to believe. Why? Not because they've lost their faith, but because they're trying to accommodate their faith to another faith and make them work together. They're trying to make these things balance. God says they never do. Whatever it is you're trying to hide, whatever it is you're afraid of, that's the idol. And you've got to ask yourself, why are you hiding it? Why are you trying to conceal it? Are you afraid that you're going to be judged? Well, you should know by now that that that's not the real fear because the people you're worried will be judging you are idolaters ourselves facing the same struggle. We all know what it's like to try to hold to our faith tenaciously, but also make an allowance for what God condemns. We've all been there and all need to encourage one another in worshiping him truly. It's good to be able to identify the idols in our lives. We need to know what those idols are. We shouldn't be in denial about it. But the reason that we need to know is so that we can shut the lid, so that we can carry them out, so we can get rid of them, so we can make the sacrifice that we've been called to make. Don't harden yourself. Don't grow so accustomed to living two faiths that they feel like one to you. Instead, throw out the wickedness, distance yourself from it, shut the lid. Now, there is good news in this. I'm, I'm not saying pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I'm not saying you need to be a stronger person. 
in order to follow the Lord. The end of idolatry in this vision, the end of idolatry in the land and in our hearts, it comes like the wind from the Spirit. The power that does this is spiritual power. It's God's power. And it is part of your salvation to see your idols blown away, no matter how hard you try to cling to them. The power to dethrone other gods comes from the Spirit. All I'm saying is don't waste another moment trying to defend wickedness. Don't waste your time trying to justify wickedness or or, or make it make sense in your mind. The woman to cherish is not the woman in the basket. The woman to cherish is the woman in the wilderness who is persecuted, who is on the run, but who will be ultimately rescued and united to Christ. The value of John's revelation for those of us reading Zechariah is that we get to see how this all ends. John's revelation reveals that woman's deliverance, which is our deliverance by the power of the Spirit. The same wind that carried the covenant scroll in the last vision, the same wind that lifts wickedness out into exile, the same wind that rushed through the upper room. On the day of Pentecost, the wind that blows where it wishes, you hear its sound and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, that wind is the power of the Spirit. And that is the power that allows us to break free from our idols. Wickedness is in the air. We see it all around us. And it seems as if that that word is is a terrible warning. Wickedness is in the air. Like you might breathe it in. You can't escape wickedness. But it's actually, as you can see here, pretty good news. Wickedness is in the air because wickedness has been bundled up, has been gathered and collected and put into a container with a stopper on top and is being taken out of the land. That's what we have to look forward to by the power of the Spirit. So let's long for and wish for that deliverance. Let's pray for it, even if it means it costs us. Let's anticipate and beg for this gift of power from the Spirit to turn our backs on our idols. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.